Our sermon text this morning is John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to John chapter 3, that well-worn path in your Bibles to John chapter 3. And while you are turning there, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we, we sing, joyfully sing of your amazing love and wonder how can it be, God, Let the truth of your love penetrate deep into our hearts, God. That you would plow over and break up the hardness of our hearts, God. That your love may come in and change us and transform us, God. Let that which we sing be true in our hearts as well it is as it is with our lips, God. As we, as we come to your word, we ask that you would change our hearts and change our minds and let us see your love, God. Let us see that there is a vast chasm between belief and unbelief, between condemnation and no condemnation, God. As we come to your word, let us drink of it and be fully satisfied as we are satisfied in your Son. Amen. Amen. I know we've been thinking the same thing throughout this whole week. So maybe it's best if we just get it out in the open. Here it is. I've been pondering this throughout the week. Switzerland, as a country cannot exist. Switzerland as a country cannot exist. And yes, you have your chocolate and you have your, your Alps and your skiing and everything like that, but they, they can't exist for one reason and one reason only. Neutrality. What? They, World War II is raging on, and you have Hitler and Mussolini on this side, and you have Churchill and Roosevelt on this side, and what do they do? They go, now we're good, just right here in the middle. We're going to stay right here in the middle. We're not going to pick a side. We're not going to move this way. We're not going to move that way. We're just going to stay right in, the, right in the middle. It's foolish. But that's what we do so often with our spiritual lives and with our spiritual hearts. 
In the midst of all the turmoil around us, we think that neutrality is an option, but it's not. We want to remain spiritually neutral. What do we? We're, we're religious. We're, we're not religious, but we're, we're spiritual, right? We're not, we're not those people over there. Yes, I love Jesus. That's good. In this soft, economic way, I love Jesus here, but I'm not a Bible thumper. I'm not that. And we kind of hedge ourselves somewhere in the middle, but we're not those people on the fringes. Or we, we're a little bit maybe on this side, and we say, yeah, so maybe, maybe a drink. Maybe a little too much. Maybe. I've looked at pornography. But I'm not a drunkard. I'm not those people over there. I'm not a true adulterer. I'm not those people over there. Just a little bit of drinking. Just a little bit of pornography. And we, we'd like to think that we can remain spiritually neutral. As if that's a viable option. Because that's what we've been taught. What we will see in our text here is that there's no neutrality as we relate to God. And we want to use, uh, we want to stay in the middle and point to the extremes of being religious or irreligious as a means to justify our existence in the middle of being spiritually neutered, spiritually dead. But there's no neutrality as we relate to God, for there's no neutrality within God himself. So as we approach this text here, what are we going to see? Well, we're going to see that we must believe. We must have a full-orbed idea of what that means to believe and to believe in Christ. And we must believe in Christ who, let me tell you about this Christ, Christ who has come to save you. And so we have this, verse 16, what are you going to see? Well, we sang about so often right here this morning. The boundless love of God. We're going to see that in verse 16. And then verses 17, or 16, uh, yeah, 17 and 18. We're going to see that Christ was sent and Christ was sent to save us. So we see the, the boundless love of God the Father resulting in the fact that Christ is sent. And he's not sent to condemn us, but rather to save us. And then finally at the end here, we're going to see that we should be coming to the light. No longer remaining in darkness, but coming to light. So let's jump in here in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that... Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The first thing you notice here is this, this, this connectedness with the previous verses going on, right? It starts with the word for. Another way you could translate it is because. It's, you have to remember this verse is not just a, we quote it often, quote it properly, and it should be quoted often. But it's not just kind of a, a one-off verse. It's in the middle of the conversation that Christ is having with Nicodemus. Remember, as Adam was preaching on last week, Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night. A little bit of background, according to the Talmud, um, ancient Jewish writings, uh, this man, Nicodemus, was one of the richest and most distinguished men in Jerusalem. Um, he was 
the rare occurrence of both being a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin sat in that court as well. So one of the old rabbis who became a Christian, he said, it must have been a mighty power of conviction to break down the prejudices so far as to lead this old Sanhedrin, this Nicodemus, Nicodemus, to lead him to Christ and acknowledge a Galilean country folk up north, not from the city in Jerusalem, but with those guys way up north, to acknowledge a Galilean untrained in the schools, so he's rural, uneducated, to acknowledge him as a teacher who has come from God. And you notice at first Nicodemus doesn't even pose, doesn't even ask a question to him. He just states that he came from God. And why does he say this? Look at your text. Why does he say this? Well, because of all the signs that he is doing. It's one of the, the central themes in Jewish thought. Are, are you from God or are you not? Moses, are you from God or not? Prove it. Well, with the signs. Okay. Elijah, Elisha, are you from God or not? Prove it. Okay, show me the signs. John the Baptist, are you from God or not? Prove it. I see the signs, Nicodemus says. He must be from God. And Christ responds. And he tells him, you actually think you see these signs. But you don't, you don't get it. You see, you see the outward manifestations and the, the physicality of it, but you don't actually see what it's pointing to and what it means. And he says, unless you are born again, you think you see them, but unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of, of heaven and the kingdom of God. <laughs> so Nicodemus obviously asks, okay, well, how, what? How does that happen? Do I go back into my mother's room? I don't think he's, he's not being a jerk. He was just wonderful. Like, really? I'm going to be born again? Do I go back in my mother's room? So as you read the Gospels and you're oftentimes confounded by the words of Christ, you're not the only one. Not only us who are reading them, but those who heard them as well are oftentimes confused at what he's getting. It's as if it takes a lifetime of meditation, perhaps an eternity of meditation on these words to plumb their depths. So Nicodemus responds and he says, no, you, you have to be born of the water and also born of the spirit. They're an earthly and then also a, a spiritual birth. And he, Nicodemus responds in verse 9, he says, how can, these, how can this be true? And he says, well, don't you know it's been foretold? You've read the scriptures, right? That just as Moses lifted up this, the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Remember, as Adam recalled for us last week, you have this plague come over the Israelites as they're wandering through the desert, this plague of poison through the serpents, came and was unleashed on the people and they were bitten and this poison would come into them and come into their veins and corrupt their hearts and begin to kill them. And there's nothing they could do but look to the one who was high and lifted up. This serpent, this bronze serpent who was high and lifted up. In the same way, we obviously, we look to Christ 
who is high and lifted up when the poison of sin is corrupting our hearts and is it going to kill us? So then we're left hanging here and it's, there's an obvious question. Why? Why would God send his son to have him high and lifted up? Why would God do that to his son? What could possibly motivate God his, the Father to send his son for that reason? What's the driving force in his heart to compel him to do that? To place his son in such a, a determinedly perilous position? It's, it's love. Love has done it. The answer is, is it, for God so loved and he loved the world. He loved his world. This boundless love of God is, is beyond measure. It's both filling and it's both satisfying. It's, it's near and tangible. And we have it. And, and you know it when you have it. Yet it reaches far beyond the plains. Past the horizon. And this verse kind of, somewhat, helps us define what love is. Here he's, you see here that he's giving of himself for the benefit of others. He's giving of himself for the benefit of, his, of others. He's giving of his own son so that others may have eternal life. Thus God is then becoming the very definition of love, as you see in 1 John 4. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, John also writes, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. He gives of himself for the benefit of others. As Paul writes it this way, he said, God showed his love for us that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's keep going here, though. For God so loved the world that he gave... His only son. Here you see this, this love is it's, it's kinetic. It has actions. It's not just affections that remain frozen. It has movement. It does things. This love of God that is, is eminently close and beyond measure is, is move. It's, it's kinetic and it has purpose. So then the, the result then of this love for the world is that he sent his son to redeem his sheep who hear his voice. He's not, he's not the stoic husband who tells his wife that he loves her and then doesn't do anything to show it. No, this love is kinetic and it, it moves. And there's so much communicated here. When he gave his only son. It's so succinct what's communicated in there. For God to give and to give his son. He gave him and he sent him out of the throne room of God. Where he is, you see later in John, that Christ is the glory that's filling the throne room of God. Where the seraphim, the burning ones, are worshiping the Father in the presence of Christ, the glory of God. Indeed, he was with God and he is God. And he was given to be given to be born of a virgin. And he was given to bind up the weak and to show the eternal riches to the poor. 
And he's also given and he's also sent to be betrayed in the garden. When he's, he's crying out that the will of God might be done. Yet not his will, but the will of his heavenly father might be accomplished. Even though he knew it would mean drinking the cup of wrath of God. He was given over to be betrayed by Peter. He was given over to be whipped and scourged by Roman soldiers. He was given over to be pierced for our transgressions. God the Father gave His Son to die for our sins. For God gave His Son. For God to give His Son was to give Him over to death. So He gave His Son. That upon the cross, Christ would take all of this upon himself. All of your sins, that he would take them upon himself. As Paul also writes this as to the church in Corinth, he writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, to make Christ to be sin, to take all of our sins, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see this, this great exchange that's happening where our sins are being poured onto Christ and then his righteousness is then being given to us. This great exchange. What's motivating all of that is the love of God. This has been the plan for all along. As, as you see in the Old Testament, even in Leviticus, it's very clear from the very beginning. Before you even leave the garden, you have this sacrifice to cover for sins. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God gave his own son's blood to be shed in the place of yours. So that your debt might be paid. And that you can stand before him. Not without guilt or shame. Not without the guilt or shame that cloaks so much of our lives. But that you might stand before him. As an adopted son or daughter of God, fully known and fully loved by God. So God gave his son and he gave him to death for you. That he would be forsaken, that he would be on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that he would be forsaken, that you may stop running from God and come into his presence. And if we think about this love, and we sing of it, and I'm reading over it this week, praying through it, praying through it, praying through it, and I realize I don't really have a category for the love of God. I don't, I don't know how to process this. God's sovereignty, okay, I have a category for that. Or election and effectual calling, I have a category for that. I have a, you know, a little hook to hang it on, right? And justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification. I have little areas and little hooks in my little palace of theology that we all have. Where you can put little things and they make sense. And then I think about the love of God and I realize I don't have a category for this. I don't, I don't know what to do with it. Where, where, where does this get placed? And you, you read through some of the, the great works of theology 
um, over the past several hundred years. Uh, even the, the most popular systematic theology in the last 75 years, 700 pages long, has a page and a half, page and a half on the love of God. So the, the result then of this is that undoubtedly we, we begin to doubt the love of God. I don't have a place to put it. I don't have a place, a way to meditate on it. It doesn't sink down deep into my heart, into to your heart. So we lose sight of how amazing this is. And we lose sight of how amazing it is because we don't have a place to put, on, put it and meditate on it. And we lose sight of how amazing it is because we don't see the depth of our own sin that makes this necessary at all. So if my sin is, is not that bad, if I'm just here neutral, if I'm in the middle, then, it, well, yeah, it doesn't take much to bring me to salvation. I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm okay. But I have no depth of sin. So as you, as you contemplate the love of God and you don't have a place to, to place it on a hook, Make one and dwell on it. But if your heart is cold to the love of God, um, don't forget the depth of your own sin and the chasm then that is between your sin and the love of God. That the love of God would drive His Son forward willingly to take all of that for you. And so there's some of you, some of us, who then just want to encourage you. Um, if you doubt the love of God, it's usually rooted in the, the plight of our own circumstances. And we look at our own pain in our own lives and wonder if God actually does love us. But then let this, this verse here be a balm that heals your doubts of God's love for you. Although he is infinite and has no end, his love for his children goes beyond himself. Think of it this way. What else can he possibly give you or show you to give you his love? That's it. He's given you his own son. What more do we need? What more could we be forced to contemplate on us? So then we, when we don't see the, the love of God, when we begin to doubt it, it's actually not that the love of God is not enough. It's my inability to see it and to drink of it. So are you not nourished by the fount of God's love? It's not because this, the flow of God's love has ceased to come. Or that his well has run dry. If we are not nourished, if we are not filled, if we are not satisfied by the love of God, then it's only an indictment on ourselves that our eyes cannot see and our ears cannot hear. And our mouths are not drinking of this love and grace of God. So I implore, implore you, I encourage you, look beyond your own circumstances when you're trying to see the love of God. If you don't see the love of God because of your personal hardship, look beyond it. 
Look to God sending his own son to die for you. Why? What's compelling that his own love for you? Look beyond your internal whimsical desires of your heart so that you can behold the love of God that is clearly, clearly before you. So, okay, so we have this love of God. How do we partake of it? How do we become partakers of this? Let's finish out the rest of the verse here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends of you who are, who are beaten down throughout the week, this is good news for you. It's open for anyone that whoever believes in him. There's no restriction whatsoever. Anyone can become a partaker of this eternal life. And you notice here in, in the ESV they have whoever believes in him should not perish. It's not, um, it's not saying that if you believe, then maybe... Quite possibly, hopefully, most likely, you will have eternal life. Yes, there's, it's conditional. There's a conditional phrase in here, but it's, it's conditioned on you, you being one who believes. So if you do believe, then it will absolutely happen that you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Yes, you will die. Absolutely. Yes, you'll walk through the valley. Absolutely. But you will not perish. It changes your understanding of what life is and what my purpose is here. Your whole purpose is to believe, to believe, to believe. And notice then the object of your faith as well. Whoever believes, same in the, in, in, same in the Greek, same word as believing in faith. We just don't have a, a verb for it. Faithing, you know, it's, so we have noun and verb, so it's the same in the Greek. Whoever has believes or has faith in him. Having belief does not set you apart from the rest of the world, all right? I have belief. Congratulations. Everybody does. Everybody places their faith in something, whether it be riches or their children or their next promotion alcohol, medication, whatever it might be. Everybody has an object of faith. Everybody believes in something that it will save them from their current circumstances. Just as Christians, we realize our current circumstances are far worse than you could ever imagine. It's not that my life's a mess. It's that I'm a wretched sinner who's going to stand before a just God. world is going to say, current circumstances, I'm a little tight this month on the budget, but I have faith in X, Y, Z. Christian says, yeah, you can have faith, but it's the object of your faith and what makes it necessary. You don't realize how bad your life horribly is. It's, it's terrible. It's far worse than you can imagine. You're dying of sin. You're not dying of cancer. You're dying of sin. It's not that you don't have riches here. It's that you know nothing of eternal riches with Christ forever. So then the object of our faith, that's the key. It's not just saying whoever believes or whoever has faith and leaves it open. No, it's that Christ and Christ alone is the object of our faith. 
That's what we do. We have to turn to him and turn to him alone. To put your hands fully into the hands of God and rest there knowing that the love of God will care for you and nurture you and will give you eternal life. Okay, so we've seen that whom God has sent, God has sent Christ. And why did he do it? Well, because he loves the world. And now we're going to see that we not just have partake of that through belief, but now we're going to see a little bit more clarification on why Christ was sent. Let's keep going. We're running out of time here. I've got one verse down. Okay. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever believes not, does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the, the myth of neutrality that we were talking about earlier. We think that Christ is this kind of this killjoy who's going to come and, and then condemn us as if he's the one to do that. But it couldn't be further from the truth according to these verses. He didn't come to condemn you, but rather he came to save you. That's the good news. Christ did not come to condemn you, but to save you. Great Great news. Here's the bad news. You're still condemned. Again, there's, there's no neutrality. Either you're condemned or you're not condemned. There's none of this, I'm kind of good. I do bad things. I'm kind of bad, but I do good things. You know? It's not as though we, we start on this path and we're cruising down the middle and then we come up to a point in our life in which we kind of hit this T and then we have to take a turn either to the right or to the left, either towards God or away from God. It's, no, you're, you're not starting your path down the middle and then choosing one or the other. You're starting your path fully condemned and you love it there. You rejoice in it. You think it's great. And you're going further into the darkness, further into condemnation, joyfully, happily, choosing sin every time you can. Then God comes. Because someone is going to be socially awkward and share the gospel with you, heaven forbid. And then God comes to you and your heart comes alive. And though you were dead in your sins and you had no idea that you were, you quite enjoyed it, quite frankly. And God pulls you out of that death and then brings you into life. One of you shared this illustration with me. We, we think of it as, as though we're, we're drowning and we're, we're treading water and we're going to sink. And we're crying out, oh God, save us, save me. And Christ is there and he's in his boat and he comes and grabs you before you drown and before you die. It pulls you out and brings you into, the, into his boat, into eternal bliss and glory. And we think of that how it is. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm about to go under. And then Christ comes and grabs me. As I was informed, let me see, let me paint maybe a little more accurate picture. 
You're not treading water at all. You're dead at the bottom of the lake. And Christ jumps in. You don't, you're fine with it though. Christ jumps in, pulls you, calls you, drags you, pulls you up in the shore, gives you CPR, gets water out of your lungs, brings you back to life. And you look over and you see him and you want to thank him and you realize that he is dead. And he gave his life so that you may have your life. He has undergone temporal death so that you may have eternal life. He has gone, undergone humiliation for our exaltation. He is the forsakenness of God so that we are free to come in his, into his presence forevermore. This is the love of God. So let's finish up the rest of our text. Move briefly then into some application. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. A light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Let me, we'll just pause there. That's good. Why do you not love Christ? I'm not naive. I know some of you here do not love Christ. You don't partake of Christ. You're here to believe in Christ. And you go, oh, I've heard that a hundred times. Why do you not love Christ? It's not that you lack love. Just as you don't lack faith. It's just misdirected. You don't lack love. It's just that you love darkness. You don't love Christ. Why do you not believe? It's because you love sin. And you love darkness. And you will reject anything that is of light or comes from the light. You're not stirred or moved by the love of God because you're drawn deeper into the darkness. Eternal, eternal life and eternal glory with God are being held before you, awaiting you. And you push it aside because you think of it as less than the darkness that you love. Eternal life and glory are pushed aside, what, for fleeting sex with whomever you would want? Or you don't want your pride to be tamed? Or you don't want to hold back your tongue that can light a fire whenever you speak? Let's finish up these verses here and see what we do. Verse 20, for everyone who does these wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. You condemn yourself, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Application, what does this look like? If this is true, what does it look like for the Spirit of Christ to work in us? Number one, come to the light. Come to the light. Are you reluctant to open up to others? Brothers and sisters, do you hide? Are there sins that are not yet confessed in your life? Well, bring them to the light. And, and you yourself, you come to the light and labor every day so that others might see your works and know that they're being carried out by God. Just real practically, one of the ways, one of the main ways we do that is just being involved in a community group and living lives in proximity to other people so that one, they might see your, 
your further sanctification, the transformation in your life, and encourage you in that as you are being, are there, are these works are being carried out in God. Or they might be able to warn you when they see this darkness that used to formerly love seeping back into your life little by little, decision by decision. You need brothers and sisters around you to pull you into the light when you want to go back into the darkness. Surround yourselves with people who will grab you and drag you back into the life, into the light. What does that look like at our church? Be involved in a community group. That's application number one. Number two, love and believe in the Son who was sent to save you. Love and believe in the Son who was sent to save you. You'll hear this again and again as we're going through John, but it's because that's the only proper response to what's being revealed. And some of you right now, you do not yet believe, but you can feel God working in your heart. Maybe this very moment, we just cry out to Him in prayer. Cry out to Him. That he might save you from the weight of this, the condemnation of this sin that you have placed yourself in. To cry out to him that he might save you and he might redeem you. For this son of God, Christ, was not sent to condemn you. But rather to save you and to save you from your own sins. And to save you from eternal judgment that is looming over you. So give your hearts to Christ. And come to the fount of mercy that you might be washed clean. And have eternal life. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son that we might be redeemed. God, if there is any among us right now who do not believe, open our hearts, break them, open them, crush them, revive them, whatever you need to do, God. Bring us to a place of believing and placing all of our lives in hope and trust in you, God. And for those others who have been believing for a long time, God, let us never grow cold to this glorious truth. Never think that our, our, our knowledge is so great that we can go beyond your love. Let it satisfy us. Let it consume us. Let, us, let it fulfill us. God, and as we come now to the table to partake of your sons spiritually, partake of him. God, let us know that it is the love for which you have for us, your people, the love for your sheep that has compelled your son to come forward, to give him himself as a sacrifice. God, no lamb, no bleeding beast, no sheep, no bull joyfully gave himself what your son has. So God, as we partake of, of this meal, let us also partake of your son's love and your love for us through him. Amen. Amen.